talk one was metaphysics looking downward towards mathematics and uh, and natural philosophy and all of the sciences that in the order of learning and the order of discovery and kind of the natural uh, trajectory of the human mind, metaphysics is going to rely on um, and, and be based on. And now we're shifting our gaze from metaphysics upward toward God, who, as we will see, is in a very real sense the, the goal of Thomistic metaphysics. Um, and I'm going to say some things about the relationship between natural or philosophical theology and supernatural or revealed theology. So hopefully, by the end of these two talks, you will actually have a, a big picture view of Aquinas's understanding of the relationship between all the, dis the major philosophical and theological disciplines. So here we go, a Thomistic approach to nat natural and supernatural theology. Remember the, what I called the unity problem. So we said in ancient metaphysics, there's the problem of what, if anything, is the unity between the science of being, the science of substance, the science of first principles, the science of divine things, and this cryptic science we are seeking. In medieval metaphysics, we had the problem of some people wanting to unite those, Avicenna, Averroes, Aquinas, and Scotus, and some people like Bonatus and folks who follow him wanting to divide and distinguish. So there's the narcissistic our metaphysics, which is the easy thing that should come first before even logic. And then there's the divine science, which is really hard and should come last, if at all, because most people will mess it up. Um, in modern metaphysics, the unity problem takes the form of changing conceptions of metaphysics. So the Lockean conception of metaphysics as the underlaborer of the sciences, uh, just doing conceptual clarification of empirical concepts and the diametrically opposed Kantian reconception of metaphysics, where metaphysics is now the, the part of inquiry that investigates the a priori preconditions for any empirical domain of research, um, and the changing aspects of the sciences themselves, the natural sciences, right? So psychology branches off on its own, astronomy, chemistry are developed in radical new ways that kind of separate them seemingly from the natural philosophy of as it was practiced in the earlier medieval and ancient traditions. And you've got a unity problem in contemporary metaphysics, right? So ontology or material constitution or causation or diachronic identity or modality or time, right, are all things that count as metaphysical in a contemporary, at least Anglophone, um, sense, and I mean, your unity problem is going to be even worse if you're going to do like Derrida. Um, but, um, but in general, there's this very real problem of what, if anything, is going to unify. And I gave it to Mystic Answer, right? We said, here's the unity of metaphysics. Metaphysics is the Aristotelian science of common being, i.e. the analogical unity of substance and accidents in potency and in act, insofar as this can be known through strictly immaterial principles. Easy, right? Um, now, that does actually, when properly understood, that does unify. And that does a lot of work. So there are a lot of pros to this account, right? So first, it's not a gerrymandered solution. What I mean by a gerrymandered solution is something like what I have in my pocket, right? Anything could be in there, right? Um, there's no intrinsic unity to the things I have in my pocket, right? Um, this actually carves at the joints. 
right? It actually gives us insight into um, how the human mind knows the world, right? Common being is an identifiable domain, a real domain. Right. And actually, in Q&A, this was perfect. Right. So contrast logic from metaphysics with metaphysics. What's the specific difference? Well, metaphysics is the investigation of all extra mental reality. Right. That's common being. Logic is the investigation of, so to speak, intra mental reality. Right. Um, our thoughts and concepts and the way that we reason. And that's a it looks like a joint carving distinction. Um, so it's not gerrymandered. It gives us a principle for supplying similar definitions for other disciplines like natural philosophy and mathematics. That's what we did at the end of the previous talk. In just the same way that metaphysics is the science of common being insofar as it can be known through strictly immaterial principles, we can say that metaphysics is the science of quantified being insofar as it can be known by partially material principles, and natural philosophy is the science of changeable being insofar as it can be known by strictly material principles. One way of dividing all of it up, it looks clean, it looks joint carving, that's nice. Another pro is that it provides us with a principled explanation for why contemporary metaphysics looks so disunified, right? Remember Jaeguan Kim's anthology. It's got all these topics, from a Thomistic perspective, topics like material constitution, diachronic identity, and the nature of time are all material. Those are physical, right? So investigating those things from a Thomist perspective is part of natural philosophy. It's not part of metaphysics. So the, dis the apparent disunification of contemporary metaphysics, which contemporary metaphysicians all or almost all grant, right? They all say, yeah, it's it's not really a highly unified discipline. Um, they all agree that that's the case. The Thomas now has a principled explanation for why, or at least in part, why that's the case. And it offers us a clear alternative to modern or early modern, um, so Kantian and Lockean accounts of metaphysics, right? So the Thomist can say that, well, my metaphysics, the science of common being as known through strictly immaterial principles, it can do some of the Kantian things. It can do a priori reasoning about preconditions, um, at least in some respects. And it can do some of the Lockean things. It can help clarify physical or empirical concepts, right? But um, those are just things that it does by the by, right? This is really the identity of metaphysics. Um, and you're free to be a Lockean. You're free to be a Kantian. Right. Um, the, the, what, what happens, hopefully, if we're doing philosophy well, is the Kantian metaphysician, the Lockean metaphysician, and the Thomas metaphysician will get together and argue with each other. Right. Um, and one way, maybe in, inspired by McIntyre, for me to prove that I'm better is to show that um, I can answer your questions and my questions. And you can't even raise my questions and you can't answer your questions. Right. Um, we, can, we can do the tradition displacement. Um, you can um, enter into the tradition of someone else and kind of try to identify what are the insoluble problems there. Um, and if you're confident in your tradition, then you should welcome that, right? Um, so this is not a combative Thomism, right? Um, this, is, this is a collaborative Thomism that is also a little bit confident. Okay. Nevertheless, there are cons, right? Um, and to my mind, the one that I want to focus on, at least so far, 
uh, an attempt to address is this problem that, as stated here, the answer that I've given to the unity of metaphysics doesn't perfectly address the ancient unity problem, right? So remember, in the Aristotelian tradition, metaphysics or first philosophy or the premier philosophy is variously referred to in all five of these ways. The science of being, the science of substance, the science of first principles, the science of divine things, and the science we are seeking. Um, and those don't look like they're the same. You might worry that the Thomistic answer is just this. Mm, yeah, metaphysics is just number one. It's the science of being. And it has nothing to say about those other things. It can't actually incorporate or unify those other aspects. Um, and if that ends up being the answer that we have to give at the end of the day, that's fine. We can bite the bullet, right? It looks like the pros outweigh the cons. Um, but I want to suggest that we don't have to bite any bullets, right? Um, and the Thomas can, in fact, resolve the ancient unity problem as well as giving principled responses to the others. So let's do it. First with a partial response. So the first thing I want to tackle is that fifth Aristotelian option. So the science that we are seeking, it's very enigmatic. Um, and so a lot of uh, um, Aristotelians of very different perspectives. So in France, Pierre Aubanc, um, and in the United States, Ralph McInerney, who Pierre Aubanc is like, he is not a Thomist. I'll put it that way, right? Um, both of them love this phrase, but it's pretty cryptic. Um, and it's pretty indefinite. And so I think we have to end up saying something like this. Either this science we're seeking just reduces to one or all of the other options. And so like, why are we seeking this science? Well, because we want to know about first principles. Why are we seeking this science? Well, because we want to know about being or substance, right? Or divine things. Or it doesn't reduce to any of them. And, it, and it's actually saying something substantive and unique. Um, if it reduces, then we don't have to worry about it. If it's saying something substantive, um, then I'll simply say this. I don't know what that is. And most people don't know what that is, whether they're Thomists or not, right? So number five, as an option for what metaphysics might actually really be, um, is no more a problem for the Thomists than for any anyone else. Um, you might think that like Obonk, that metaphysics is like an aporiology, like it's a science of just questions and puzzles and aporiae, and it never is going to give any answers. But I will just submit that if that's your view of metaphysics, I don't want anything to do with it. So, um, so I'm happy to reject it if that's what the science we are seeking means, is the science of continually seeking and never finding the truth. Um, the science of substance, this is Aristotelian option two, that I think actually is accounted for by the Thomistic answer that we've already given. So remember that. We said Thomistic metaphysics is the science of common being. And what is common being? It's the analogical community of substance and accident, impotency and an act. And that analogical community is precisely analogical with respect to substance, right? The thing that unifies common being and stands at the core of what common being is, is actual substance. So from a Thomistic perspective, 
to engage in the science or the study of substance just is to engage in the science and the study of common being. Be precisely because you haven't adequately accounted for actual substance unless you are also recognizing that actual substance is the thing in virtue of which potential substances, potential accidents, and actual accidents all count as beings. So the Thomist answer that I've already given you can resolve this. We can unify Aristotelian option one and Aristotelian option number two. The science of common being and the science of, of substance are one science. But now we need to complete the response, right? We need to actually unify or attempt to unify the, those other elements. So how, if at all, does the science of being, as I've described it to you, relate to the science of first principles? That's Aristotelian option number three. And the science of divine things, option number four. That question was not lost on St. Thomas. And so unlike the, it's possible that you might think I'm kind of a Thomist hack from the first talk because I didn't give you any quotes. Um, I am going to pour quotes on you now, right? So, so now you know he actually does read Aquinas, right? Um, so the question of unifying these three aspects or these three um, candidates was not lost on Aquinas. Here's what he says at the beginning of his commentary on Aristotle's um, metaphysics. This is the very beginning of the text, right? So this is the way that he introduces. Um, as Aristotle teaches in the politics, that's a surprising reference. As Aristotle teaches in the politics, when many things are ordered to one thing, one among them must be managing or ruling, and the others managed or ruled. And then he gives a bunch of examples. So this is clear in the case of the union of soul and body, for the soul naturally commands and the body naturally obeys. And the many he has in mind, there are the many organs and appendages of the body. The case is similar among the powers of the soul, for in the natural order, the irascible powers and the concupiscible powers are ruled by reason. But all sciences and arts are ordered to one thing, namely the perfection of man, which is his bliss. Thus, it is necessary that one among them which rightly claims the title of wisdom should be the manager of the rest. For it belongs to the wise to set others in order. We can tell which science this is and what sort of things it deals with if we diligently attend to how someone is qualified to rule. For just as people of vigorous intellect are naturally the rulers and masters of others, as Aristotle uncomfortably says in the politics, while some people are, he uncomfortably says, uh, robust in body, but lacking in, in intellect and so naturally servants, so too the science that is most intellectual naturally ought to be the manager of the others. And that will be the one that deals with the most intelligible things. Um, now, from our kind of liberated first world uh, perspective, we might worry about some of the examples that he gives, right? Especially the natural slave, natural master thing. Um, nevertheless, those are examples you, that he's using just as an inductive base. I take it that the core of the argument goes like this. Wisdom is the art or science that manages all the other arts or sciences with a view to human perfection. But the art or science that manages all the others with a view to human perfection is the art or science that's most intellectual. 
The order science that's most intellectual is the one that's about the most intelligible things. Blank is the order science about the most intelligible things. And that blank will be wisdom. That ain't a bad argument. And you don't have to buy into weird Aristotelian notions of natural slavery to think that's a good argument. All you need to think is that, um, yeah, when one thing is in charge of directing something else, it better be the, the more intelligent one. Um, and that's a pretty plausible premise. So the question now is, what does he think are the best candidates for this art or science that is about the most intelligible things? Whatever that is, it's going to be wisdom. It's going to be metaphysics. And it turns out he thinks there are three. Candidate one, he says the most intelligible things can be grasped in three ways. The first is from the understanding's internal order. For the things from which the intellect receives certitude seem to be the more intelligible. Since then, scientific certitude, and that's Aristotelian scientific certitude, right? Scientific certitude is acquired by the intellect from causes. The knowledge of causes seems to be the most intellectual. Thus, that science which considers the premier causes seems most of all to be the manager of the others. So the idea is that the most intelligible things are going to be the things that yield the most certainty. But what is it that we're the most certain about? It's the premier causes, right? So we're most certain when we understand the most basic causes of things. Um, so here I'll use just a kind of clinical example, right? Um, so one of the metaphysicians that is most influential on Aquinas is Ibn Sina or Avicenna from the Islamic tradition. And Avicenna was first and foremost a physician. Um, so, and for, so for both of them, um, medicine is actually a really good analog for thinking about metaphysics, um, and for thinking about science in general, right? So consider this, you can look at someone who comes in and says, I'm sick, right? And they'll report symptoms or you'll see symptoms, right? Um, but you start with the symptoms and then you look for the disease, why do you look for the disease? Because the disease will be the thing that explains the symptoms, right? The disease is the cause of the symptoms. So when you know the disease, you can be more confident about your knowledge of, uh, of the symptoms. When you know the cause, you can be more confident about your knowledge of the effects, right? It might be that you're, until you know what disease is actually in play, you could be misreading some of the symptoms, right? This is why like House is such a fun show, right? Because usually the, it like arc one of the narrative is this person comes in with symptoms and then arc two is either they develop more symptoms because we thought the disease was one thing and it's not. And so we tried to cure it and we messed it up. Uh, or it turns out that we were misunderstanding the symptoms that we were looking at, right? We only really understand the symptoms when we understand the cause, the disease, right? But the disease itself isn't even the premier cause. The disease is the kind of immediate cause of the symptoms, but you really understand what's going on with someone's health when you understand what caused the disease in the first place, right? That's, that's how you know how to really cure someone, right? And so when you're in a position of knowing what caused the disease that caused these symptoms, then you can be really certain about your knowledge of the symptom and your knowledge of the disease, right? So it's the premier causes that give you the greatest certainty, that give you the, the deepest understanding. Premier causes, those are the first principles, which means 
Aquinas's first candidate just is Aristotle's option three, the science of first principles. So the first thing that might count as wisdom or metaphysics is the science of first principles. Candidate two. He says the second way that the most intelligible things can be understood is by comparison of the intellect to sensation. For since sensation is a knowledge of particulars, the intellect seems to differ from sensation on account of the fact that it comprehends universals. Thus, that science is most intellectual, which deals with what is most universal. These are being and the things that follow upon being, like one or many, potency and act, right? All of those are metaphysicals. But such things should not remain altogether undetermined, since it's not possible to possess complete knowledge of things that are proper to any genus or species without understanding them. Nor again, should they be treated in one of the particular sciences. So like chemistry shouldn't investigate being, unity, multiplicity, potency, and act, um, in part because there would be equal reason for them to be treated by every particular science. Since every science is studying beings and unities in potency and act, then chemistry has no better acclaim to study these things than biology or physics. Hence, it remains that such things be treated by a single common science that, since it's the most intellectual, should be the manager of the others. So on this view, most intelligible thing is going to be the most universal, which is going to be being and the things that follow upon being. So Aquinas' second candidate just is Aristotle's first option, the science of being. You probably see where I'm going with this. Candidate three. The third way that the most intelligible things can be understood is from the intellect's own knowledge. For since each thing has intellectual intensity from the fact that it is free from matter, it's necessary that those things which are most separate from matter should be the most intelligible. For the intelligible and the intellect are uh, must be proportioned and belong to one genus, since the intellect and the intelligible are one in act. If you have questions about what that means, go for it in Q&A. Um, it's not relevant for us here. What is relevant is just this. Those things are most separate from matter, which abstract not only from designated matter, like this flesh and these bones, right? Marble, uh, that marble, that wood, like natural forms, um, which can be taken universally, right? So in philosophy of nature, we don't consider this marble, but we do consider marble. We don't consider this flesh, but we do consider flesh, right? Those are physical concepts, right? But being... And the most universal things aren't like that. Um, and um, God and the intelligences aren't like that, right? So the difference is this. Immaterial things that are set entirely separate from matter and motion are separate not only according to ratio, like mathematical things, so not only according to concept, right, understanding, but they're separate from sensible matter enti uh, entirely even according to being. So substance isn't like that. Um, substance can be in matter or not. Actuality can be in matter or not. Doesn't need to be, but it might be. God? Mm -mm. Um, bracketing the incarnation, right? So according to natural reasoning, you would not conclude that God can be in matter, right? According to natural reasoning, you do not conclude that angels can be in matter, 
right? And even a, just to, to follow up on the bracket, even according to supernatural theological reasoning, you do conclude this. God cannot be in matter according to the divine nature, right? That's why in order to, to become material, God had to assume a human nature. Why? Because materiality is proper to human nature and materiality is excluded by the divine nature. So if God is to be incarnate, he must be incarnate by assuming a, a carnate nature, right? A material fleshy nature. Okay. Thus, the science that considers those things seems to, uh, seems to be most intellectual and the Lord or lady, that's a, a nice little image, right? Um, it's kind of like upstairs, downstairs, right? Very British. Um, you know, the, the metaphysics is like the, the upstairs Lord um, governing all of the other little sciences and arts uh, that are kind of like the downstairs help. Um, so most intelligible things equals, in this case, most immaterial things, which equals God and the angels. So not just things that could be or not be in matter, but things that positively can't be in matter. Which means Aquinas' third candidate just is Aristotle's option four, the science of divine things. That is what's called philosophical theology, or in the Thomistic tradition, natural theology, right? So to reason about immaterial substances, divine substances, according to the light of natural reason, right, without the help of revelation, that is philosophical or natural theology. So, one of the candidates for what might count as wisdom, what might be metaphysics, is natural or philosophical theology. The other two candidates are the science of being, ontology, and uh, which is also the science of substance, if you want an annoyingly Greek name, ousiology. Um, and the third one is the science of first causes or premier principles, um, theology. Okay. Those are our candidates. This is my favorite quote from St. Therese of Lisieux, uh, particularly at the dinner table um, or the dessert table. I choose all, right? This is also Aquinas' answer to which of the three is metaphysics. I choose all. They will be unified. How? This way. He says, this threefold consideration should not be attributed to different sciences. So we shouldn't think that there's ontology over here and natural theology over here and a science of first causes or an theology over here. We should actually think that those are just all three names for one discipline, one and the same thing. Why? Because the separate substances just mentioned are the global and premier causes of being. But it belongs to the same science to consider the proper causes of some genus, some kind, some class, and that kind, class, or genus itself. Just as natural science considers the principles of natural bodies, right? So when you do natural philosophy, you part of what you're doing as a natural philosopher is inquiring into the principles and the causes of natural things, of changeable beings. Thus, it must pertain to the same science to consider separate substances and common being, which is the genus whose common and global causes are the immaterial substances just mentioned. From all this, it's clear that even though this science does consider the three things previously mentioned, so first causes, immaterial beings, and immaterial substances, and common being, 
um, it does not consider each of them as its subject. It only considers common being as its subject. For in a science, the subject is the thing whose causes and properties we seek. It's not the causes of that sought after genus that's the subject, right? So in metaphysics, we're investigating common being, being in general, right? The analogical community of substances and accidents in potency and in act, right? And when we investigate that, we're looking for what are its principles and what are its properties. And when we investigate its principles, that's what Aquinas is saying here is going to lead us to natural theology. Knowledge of the cause of a genus is the goal toward which the consideration of a science reaches. But even though the subject of this science is common being, nevertheless, the whole science is said to be about those things which are separate from matter according to being and ratio. So being and understanding. This is because those things are said to be separate according to being and understanding, which not only never can be in matter, like God and angels, but also can be not in matter, right? Can be without matter, like common being or substance or form. But that would not happen if they depended upon matter according to being, right? So common being is the subject of the science. God is its principle. So immaterial substances now are the first principles, which means that Aristotle's option four, the science of divine things, of separate substances, these immaterial things, ends up being the same thing as Aristotle's option three, the science of first principles, right? So what are the ultimate first principles that the metaphysician is seeking to investigate, seeking to kind of unearth as the metaphysician investigates being? The divine realities, the truly immaterial right? The metaphysical in the boldest sense of meta, the beyond physical. So first principles are the causes and principles of what? Of common being, right? That's what they're the first principles of. So being itself, being in general, is this thing that has God as its first principle, which means that Aristotle's option three, the science of first principles, is also Aristotle's option one, the science of being, to investigate common being, the analogical community of blah, 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 right, just is to investigate God in a natural way. Because when we investigate being, and we dig real deep to discover what is the cause or the principle of being itself, we find out it's God. And this means that Aristotle's option four, science of divine things, is Aristotle's option one the science of being, right? Just, that's just transitivity, right? So if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. I'm still not good at math. Okay, what does that mean? It means that natural theology for Aquinas is metaphysics. Natural theology isn't like part of metaphysics. It's not a discipline separate from metaphysics. It's def This is like a stake in Nicholas Bonatus's heart right? Um, it's not like you've got our metaphysics, which is really easy and studies being in general. And then you've got this really hard thing, um, natural theology, the science of divine things that you should only do at the end, right? For a Thomist, Bonatus is um, uh, like one who supports diver divorce, trying to split what God has united, right? Um, let no man split these things. Um, 
So common being is the subject of metaphysics. It's what the science is about, but God is the principle of that subject, the cause. And for that reason, knowledge of God is the goal of the science. And what that means, and this is now answering the question that I punted on earlier, it means for the Thomas metaphysician, God is in a real and strict sense beyond being. And so, I mean, you, you may have, Father Simon mentioned that I may kind of tip my hand and show my cards a little bit. I've, I've been engaged for the last five years in pretty constant dialogue with folks in the analytic philosophical tradition. And I do think that that's a, um, a fruitful thing for a Thomas to do if the Thomas is so inclined. Um, this point is a point on which the Thomas might more easily engage with continental, contemporary continental thinkers. So, um, so actually, I mean, just as a historical point, Jean-Luc Marion um, at one point criticized Aquinas for uh, succumbing to a kind of Heideggerian ontotheological critique. And, uh, but Jean-Luc has rescinded that criticism precisely because Thomas metaphysicians have brought this to his attention. So particularly um, this, it's extremely clear in Aquinas's commentary on a book called the Liber de Causis, the Book of Causes, which is a Neoplatonic text, his commentary on Proposition 6, he says explicitly this, that strictly speaking, God, according to the truth, God is beyond being, right? So where being here is ends communa, right? So the, the notion of being that we naturally grasp and that we study as metaphysicians is that of which God is the principle. God's not included under it. So for the Thomist, God is not a being among beings like any other being, right? The most proper thing we can say is that God is be-ing, right? He is in the Latin, it's esse per se subsistens, right? But what esse per se subsistens indicates is that he's not an entity, right? A being, ens, E-N-S in Latin, is something that partakes of um, in the hyphen sense. Um, so God is in a very real and strict sense beyond being for the Thomist. He's outside the subject matter of metaphysics. He's nevertheless discussed by the metaphysician because he's the principle of the subject matter. So given all that, we can ask this question. What can natural theology, metaphysics, teach us about God? Well, there are three possible answers. It can teach us nothing, it can teach us something, or it can teach us everything, right? Those are the, the candidates on the table. Um, for Aquinas, not one right? Natural theology, it's false to say that natural theology has nothing to teach us about God. And this is where the Thomist is going to, largely speaking, critique and conflict with many folks in the continental tradition today. Um, so by and large, the project of philosophical or natural theology in the contemporary continental tradition is um, problematized. I'll just put it that way. Right. Um, but this is something that we're going to we're going to go to the wall for this. Right. You die on this hill if you're a Thomist. Um, why? Well, because at the very least, natural philosophy i.e., or natural theology, i.e. metaphysics, teaches us that God is the principle of common being. Right. That's the goal of the metaphysician. When the metaphysician arrives at the, the actual grasp 
of God as the fundamental principle and cause of being itself, um, that tells us something about God. Um, but it also doesn't tell, natural theology also doesn't tell us everything about God. And there are for a, a lot of reasons. So here's one that we've already seen. All our knowledge as human beings comes through this, through sensation. But since all our knowledge comes through sensation, that means we can't have proper knowledge about immaterial substances, right? Substances like God and angels, right? Those are in themselves immaterial, which means they're in themselves unsensible. Can't see them, can't touch them, can't taste them, can't hear them, right? Um, and that means we can't know properly what they are. Also, as we just saw, God in particular is genuinely beyond being, which means since being is the proper object of our intellects, it means that we can't have proper knowledge of God. We can only know God in relation as he's related to things that are the sorts of things we know. And last, we'll just point this out, metaphysics is an Aristotelian science. And what did we learn in the last talk? That Aristotelian sciences are instances of reasoning where we move from necessary premises to necessary conclusions, which means if metaphysics or natural theology is a, an Aristotelian science, it can't teach us any contingent truths about God. Here are some contingent truths about God. Um, it's contingent that God creates the universe, right? He didn't have to. Um, it's contingent that God chooses the people of Israel as his inheritance. He didn't have to. It's contingent that God becomes incarnate of a virgin and dies on the cross for our salvation. He didn't have to, right? Natural theology can deliver us none of those truths. Nevertheless, um, natural theology, metaphysics, can teach us some things about God. It can teach us that God exists, precisely insofar as he's the principle of common being. It can teach us what God is not. This is what we call apophatic or negative theology, right? So God is not material. God is not composite. God is not finite, right? All of those negative names for the Lord are um, names that are accessible to us by the light of natural reason as metaphysicians, as natural or philosophical theologians. And it can also, in some sense, teach us what God is like. And this is what's called analogical cataphatic theology, right? So we can say things like God is good, um, that God is love, right? Um, that God is perfect. And all of those, in all of those cases, we are saying something true about God. We can say that God is a principle, right? He's the principle of common being. We can say that God is a cause. He's the cause of common being, right? And yet in all of those cases, we have to nudge a little bit what we mean by cause, what we mean by principle, what we mean by good, what we mean by perfect, what we mean by love, right? Because in us, love is a passion, you know, um, in us, or in us, love is a choice, an exercise of free will, if it's rational love, right? But God doesn't undergo passions the way we undergo passions. And God doesn't make choices the way that we make choices, right? God doesn't apply his will. He is his will, right? And so in all of these cases of things that we can, as natural theologians, as metaphysicians, say about God, 
Nevertheless, we need to tweak the meanings of the words. So we, they're only predicated analogically, just the same way that we saw earlier, or kind of the same way as we saw earlier, that being really can be said of substance, an actual substance, and a potential accident. And yet the meaning of the word isn't quite the same in both of those cases. Um, you with me? Great. Okay. So this brings us to the threshold of supernatural theology, sacred theology, the kind of thing that Father Simon does, right? That can tell us a whole lot more, right? That empowers us to know more about God than and more about the divine than natural uh, theology or metaphysics. Only through revelation can we know truths like the truth of the Trinity, the truth of the incarnation, the truth of the creation of the world in time, right? So Father Simon mentioned this last night that for Aquinas, he thinks it's, you can demonstrate that the world is created according to natural reason. You cannot demonstrate that the world was created at a particular moment in time, right? So it could be the case that the, from a philosophical point of view, that the world is both eternal, always existing, and created, right? Avicenna has a nice image for this. So imagine a foot pressed into the sand. So you've got sand, footprint, foot. Which causes which? Does the footprint cause the foot or the foot causes the footprint? The foot causes the footprint, right? And that would be true even if the foot, the print, and the sand were just always there. Aquinas thinks you could have a world that was always there and yet always caused in its existence by God, right? So philosophical reasoning isn't going to be able to give you the creation of the world at a moment in time. Revelation does that. Revelation gives us the truths of salvation history, right? The election of Israel, the incarnation of Jesus, right? His death on the cross. And that supernatural theology has God as its subject. It doesn't just have God as its principle, right? So natural theology has common being as its subject and God as its principle. Supernatural theology has God as its subject and all things in relation. So supernatural theology is the science of God and all things related to God insofar as this can be known through revealed principles, right? So in the natural order, we've got strictly material principles, partially material principles, strictly immaterial principles. In the supernatural order, you have supernatural principles, and those are revealed principles. So truths that we know through the light of faith. Now, that still doesn't teach us everything about God, but it does teach us more than natural theology does. We'll only know everything about God in the beatific vision. So we can draw a little analogy. Natural theology stands to supernatural theology, stands to the beatific vision, as nature stands to grace, stands to glory. And just as there's a huge gap between nature and grace, there's a huge gap between natural theology and supernatural theology, sacred theology. There's not quite so huge a gap between supernatural theology and beatific vision or between grace and glory, because grace is the seed of glory, right? Grace is our participation here and now in the glory that one day we will experience 
In the same way, supernatural theology, revealed theology, sacred theology, is a participation here and now in this life in the beatific vision that we hope to enjoy. So there's not a perfect parody, but there is a nice analogy. Natural theology brings us, it's the highest that human nature, human reasoning can ever get. It brings us to the threshold, right? The gate is locked until God himself unlocks it for us with revelation. Then we can enter in that's, and proceed further along the way in the sacred theology until finally we see the Lord face to face in the beatification. So, supernatural theology. This is just the same slide. Big picture. For Thomas, the intellectual life is a pilgrimage. Natural theology and mathematics lead us to metaphysics if we really dig deep. Metaphysics, since it just is natural theology and has God as its goal, leads us to a natural knowledge of God. That natural knowledge of God puts us on the threshold. It prepares us for a supernatural knowledge of God. And the supernatural knowledge of God is a share and a participation here and now in the beatific vision that one day we hope to enjoy. And I want to suggest that for the Thomas, that pilgrimage encourage us to, it encourages us to take an attitude of epistemic humility, right? What do I mean? Um, I mean that if we're thinking about the intellectual life as a pilgrimage, we'll recognize that in this life, we are always on the way to full knowledge, which means we never actually have full knowledge. So if you want a litmus test for a good Thomist versus a bad Thomist, um, look at how triumphal they are when they interact and dialogue with others. If they're triumphal, they're a bad Thomist. Because an attitude of triumphalism is an attitude of thinking that you have full knowledge when by your own lights, you should know that you don't, right? Um, a, a Thomist who sees the intellectual life as a pilgrimage, who really understands what Aquinas thinks the trajectory of our intellectual life is, will recognize that we don't have all the answers. Um, we probably have like more of the kind of key fundamental principles than others, but that doesn't give us any right to be proud, right? Um, we're all engaged in the intellectual life together and it's a communal journey, right? Dominic sent his friars out two by two. Thomas would have walked from Paris to Orvieto, you know, with his socius Reginald, two by two, right? We're on pilgrimage, we do it together. None of us have all the answers. It also encourages epistemic optimism because it means that no domain of knowledge is truly profane, right? All truths, whether they're chemical or cognitive scientific or physical or biological, right? Whether they're sociological or anthropological, right? All truths ultimately point to the truth. 